Do you ever feel like you're always on? What do you do when you need a moment to chill? How would you like to hit the reset button to get ready for what's next? These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nothing but nonstop hustle all the time. Sometimes you just need a moment to turn off and hit reset, and that's when you can reach for Coors Light. It's made to chill. Look, it's summertime. Transfer window is coming up. It's gonna get crazy. So if you ever just wanna, again, take a step back and relax, read the transfer rounds, read the gossip rumors, grab a Coors Light. It'll be perfect companion for all those transfer merry-go-rounds. There's only one beer out there that's literally made to chill, and that's Coors Light. The mountains on the bottles and cans even turn blue when the beer is cold. That way you always know when it's time to chill. When you need to hit reset, just open a Coors Light. It's mountain cold refreshment made to chill. Now that it's finally hot in Minnesota, I'm gonna be looking for an easy beer to drink, and Coors Light is perfect for that. It's lagered, it's cold filtered, and it's cold packaged. It's, again, made to chill. It's crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies perfect for a moment to unwind and so when you want to hit reset reach for the beer that's made to chill get coors light in the new look delivered straight to your door with drizzly or instacart coors brewing company golden colorado and as always celebrate all right so you're listening to this podcast right now london is blue and guess what we host our podcast on anchor.fm that's right if you're looking to host your own podcast this is the easiest free way to get started. This has got a content creation tool allows you to record and the podcast right from a phone. That's right, don't even need a computer, but you can do it there too. They'll also help you distribute it, which is probably the most challenging part. You don't want to have to mess with that. They got you covered. You can get it right on a Spotify and Apple Podcasts as well as any other place podcasts are found. And you know what? You can monetize it too. Make a little cash for sharing your great content with the world. It's everything you need to make a podcast all in one individual place. So you know what? Head over to your app store, download the Anchor app, or head to anchor.fm to get started if you're ready to launch your podcast and make it happen. Hi, this is Ruben off this cheek. This is William. I'm Mason Mount. You're listening to the London is Blue podcast. And welcome back, Chelsea fans, to another episode of the London is Blue podcast. Coming at you with another special this time. It is not a typical match review podcast, nor is it a opposition preview podcast uh but it's gonna be exciting so obviously myself brandon joined as always by dan and nick nick last time you got to intro the guest you're getting skipped over i'm going right to (laughs) dan this time all right dan so the honor goes to you who do we have and what is going on today well this is extremely exciting because this is someone who as a chelsea follower in mass and anyone should be following the account at Chelsea Youth, but we have uh, had a chance to make a connection here with Phil, the uh, the man behind the Chelsea Youth account that uh, over 150,000 people follow, where we got the probably the most mentions for a guest in any capacity, uh, other, next to a player. Uh, so Phil, welcome to the show. We are excited to have you and uh, chat about in this episode the the Dev Squad. Yeah, hi guys. Uh, thanks for having me on. I'm really excited to to be here and to be able to talk everything about the academy with you. It, it only took three years of ruthless and consistent prodding from us, and we are so glad that uh, that you're able to join and and provide wisdom to to the masses. I I hope I can do that. <laughs> no doubts at all. Um, so yeah, I guess, you know, real quick before we get into the, the really deep, exciting stuff, Phil, I mean, I think a lot of people, you know, also just kind of want to know, 
there's an assumption you're a Chelsea fan, but we should probably <laughs> give you the chance to clarify this. Chelsea since birth. All right. Undeniably. With a, a, a heavy bias towards the academy over the last decade for obvious reasons, but Chelsea mm-hmm. first, uh, Chelsea last, and pretty much Chelsea everything in between. That's awesome. And then obviously, you know, I guess from your point, everyone wants to talk about Frank, and obviously you're going to have probably a much stronger opinion on the academy players getting the minutes they are, but... You know, just putting the Chelsea U stuff aside, how exciting you as a fan um, was this kind of transition by the club? It's about as exciting as I felt about Chelsea since when Mourinho returned for his second spell, which was ultimately very ill-fated. But it's refound a connection to the core of the club's identity for me at the very least. And I get that everybody has their own connections with the club and their own reasons for getting excited. But coming into this season, it's felt a lot more personal obviously you're seeing a bunch of guys on the coaching staff and the first team squad getting the the promotions that they deserve and the opportunities that they've warranted but couldn't be happier right now could you maybe talk to us a little bit about like joe edwards for example or or jody morris who spent uh, a significant amount of time kind of earning their stripes um in the chelsea Chelsea youth uh, system setup and, and what it means to kind of see their advancement into the first team to kind of bring up a Mason Mount or a Tammy Abraham, etc. I mean, I think it means everything to to people on the academy side, to people with, with Chelsea coursing through their blood, because someone like Joe, he was at the club as an eight-year-old, played through to the age of 16 and didn't quite have the playing career that he may have once expected, but then carried on working at the academy almost immediately. He's done every job uh, you can conceive there. Jody had the the playing journey, came through, lived five minutes down the road, walked to matches at Stamford Bridge, made his debut at 17. So he's been around, he's come back, and it's having that Chelsea identity running through the club again. It's been there on the academy side as a very deliberate part of Neil Bath's operation to be able to connect back to the core values of what Chelsea Football Club has meant and will mean in the future. And we're starting to see that influence come onto the first team side again far more than at any point I can remember in recent years. Do you think that if everything goes according to plan with Frank and Jody and Joe and everything that's happening with the players that Neil will probably be the one who has his you know fingerprints all over the crime scene essentially that he'll be the one who deserves <laughs> maybe the most credit for um for this kind of transformation in Chelsea's history. Uh, without a doubt I think he's tremendous at what he does and possibly the most underrated club asset now and throughout his entire tenure. Oh. Because I think they owe a huge debt of gratitude to him because I mean he's been working at the club in various capacities in 1993. So he's overseen the arrival of John Terry to the club and the development through the first team. And we we know the influence he's had on things. But if this latest generation of academy graduates playing and non-playing can take Chelsea to where they'd like to be, then he's... His reputation is only going to grow and grow further. He's a fantastic individual and he deserves thanks from every Chelsea fan, as far as I'm concerned, for what he's been able to achieve and bring to the club. Without a doubt. And I mean, um, you know, I think we've too easily gone right into a lot of this stuff. So let me just pause real quick. For the audience, if you haven't guessed it yet, (laughs) we're going to be talking all things uh, Chelsea Academy and essentially non-first team Uh, operations for the club and we're going to be doing a two-part series so um, make sure to listen to the second part but this episode we're mainly going to talk about the development squad all right 
Um, we're going to focus on those players. And then in the other episode, we'll talk about the U18s for this season. And so we, we, you know, we'll have a lot of time to, to jump in depth to these things. So Dan, I will pass to you real quick to kind of tee this up and then we can continue this Andy Myers uh, chat because I am excited to dig into this. Yeah, so you know, I think we uh, we're we're fans of your work in addition to being just Chelsea fans in general. And I think when I was getting ready for this episode, I kind of jumped back into your season preview and just pulled out the the beginning part of it, which was that three months ago in the 2018-19 Chelsea Academy season drew to an unusually subdued conclusion. The development squad claimed a hard-earned 2-1 win away to Brighton on a cool Friday night on the Sussex coast, just a week after the U18s had rounded off their campaign with a similar victory on their travels at Reading. There was no hoopla, there was no memorable celebrations, and there was no silverware. For the first time since 2013, the Blues finished the campaign without a trophy, having lost the UEFA Youth League final for the second successive year, this time FC Porto. And I think that, to me, set the stage really for the conversation that we'll have today. Is just This is was a really abnormal season for the academy in terms of you know i mean the academy produced silverware that was kind of the the trend that we had continued for a significant period of time and this is the first one in recent memory where that didn't happen uh, you know how did you feel about that 2018-19 season and uh, where did it kind of land for you and, and why did that happen i was fairly circumspect about it all because success isn't guaranteed chelsea go into every season aiming to win silverware because they consider it an important part of the player's development plan to, to challenge for and to win tournaments. That's what you want to do at the top level. That's what you teach from an early age. But it's not guaranteed. It's not promised. And they were they reached the, champ- the UEFA Youth League final again. They were within 90 minutes of adding even more silverware to the ever-expanding trophy cabinet they have at Cobham now. Um, the Youth Cup has been an, a fair staple for five years before last season, and we can touch upon reasons why they weren't able to retain that when we do the under-18 section later on. But the development squad have always found it a little bit tougher on the step up. They've challenged in Europe. There's an under-19 age group that brings in some of the better under-18s. But I think there were lessons to be learned. The players have developed well, and I don't think that finishing a season without silverware means that it was a failure of a season. Can you uh, can you talk to us just a little bit, you know, I think for those unindoctrinated, about the purpose of a U23 dev squad in PL2 versus what the U18s do versus going out on loan to a championship club and, like, what the role is of that team in general, just so that we can set the table for Andy? Yeah, absolutely. The under-18 setup is fairly synonymous across the country. Everyone signs a scholarship at the age of 16 after leaving school, which is essentially their further education they become full-time footballers but they have educational requirements on the side once they turn 17 they're eligible to sign a professional contract and cease education if they want to once you hit the age of 18 you then move up into what used to be reserve football which would have the best of the youngsters alongside the the first team fringe in the last decade or so that's given way to under 21 football and now under 23 football because Quite frankly, there's too much talent in the English game and it creates a logjam. So players end up playing sort of in front of two, three, four hundred fans in their late teens and early twenties because there's not enough opportunity for them to get into the professional game. 
what Chelsea have done, obviously, they've had an expansive loan program to get the best of those players out a year, two years maximum after playing in the development squad, which is why we see a development squad these days where players are 17 and 18 years old, often giving up two or three years in age to some of the teams they're playing against. Love that. I um, Yeah, because I know even... Since, you know, the last 15 or so years since we've been watching, you know, personally paying attention, I've noticed that, right? It was the 18s, you've had 19s, you've had 21s, 23s. And so it's definitely been an evolution. I'm aware that, you know, in Spain, they have, you know, kind of the Barca B team who play down the divisions as well. Um, And it seems like England is kind of starting to take that route a little bit um, and, and, you know, just give these young players... um, you know, more opportunities to compete at a higher level and develop. Uh, and, and a huge part of that, obviously, is the the leader of that, the head coach. And so um, the new appointment this season is Andy Myers is the new coach for this dev squad team. Um, and this was because Joe Edwards was promoted to Frank Lampard's backroom staff. So, uh, again, Andy Myers, if you aren't familiar, is a 45-year-old former blue defender that spent well over a decade working in various coaching roles at the academy. And like I said, he was most recently the under-18s coach as well as acting number two to successive coaches in the dev squad. And he also uh, spent 2016-17 away at uh, Chelsea B at the time, Vitessa Arnhem in in the Eredivisie when we were (laughs) sending everyone there as well. Um, So uh, that's kind of a common theme of Chelsea DNA in Andy Myers played he's been there for a long time put in the time and uh now he's uh, leading the dev squad so what does that mean to you phil and uh what do we kind of have to expect from from him this season i think you can expect fairly similar to what you've seen going through uh, joe edwards and ad varvash before him the academy have a core coaching strategy which they're very is tried and tested is ever changing ever being reevaluated, and each of the individual coaches that are taking charge of a team will add their own personal wrinkles to it so joe played a 352 quite heavily last season because it suited the personnel that he had available to him and he has a slightly different squad heavier with midfielders not quite as many center backs so he's he's playing the the 4231 that the first team started the season with He's absolutely, he's a realist. He understands that he wants his players to work hard. The fundamentals have to be on point and he's learning as much as everybody else is. He, he's only had one year under 18 level. Ideally, the club might have wanted him to have two or three before transitioning up, but he's got the opportunity to move early. He's just graduated the UEFA pro coaching license and his team's unbeaten after half a dozen games so far. So he's made a promising start. That's, um, yeah, that's really interesting. We were, uh, talking to Joe Tweeds as we as we typically do um, throughout the season, and one of the points that he made up as we were, you know, kind of going through what what this youth academy setup could do for the Chelsea first team is he was thinking about stylistic approaches, especially under Conte a couple of years ago, where it was such a unique kind of setup and formation, and, and was kind of the same thing week after week. Is there an expectation from the youth setup? that the you know the style of play and the form even down to the formation and the types of personnel are are mapped specifically to help fulfill requirements of the first team or could you maybe talk a little bit about how that works because i think there are a lot of assumptions out there that 
you know, you should be able to just drop in a Reese James for a Cesar Azpilicueta and everything's going to be just fine, uh, where I think there's probably a little bit more nuance than that. Yeah, there is. The The academy do their own thing coaching-wise, and that extends to the Premier League. The Premier League, as part of the Elite Player Performance Plan, tend to prescribe six to ten week coaching blocks in which they encourage teams to focus on certain styles of play, certain strategies. And Chelsea, to their credit, um, have sort of veered away from that. They do their own thing. It's proven very successful for them. They don't, for the most part, do what the first team are doing. There might be the odd occasion where the first team manager will come to them for a development squad match and ask to play in a particular style. But they do their own thing. They produce tactically versatile players who can adjust the system at the drop of a hat, understanding that when they get to the first team level, such is the transient nature of a Chelsea first team manager these days, the formation can change from, from one month to the next. And the better educated the player is, the more likely they're able to adapt to whoever comes in. Yeah. So the, the other question I would have in regards to Andy, you know, what we saw with him and the, the U18s last season, is there anything, you know, you mentioned that, you know, typically they would maybe have hoped to get an additional year for him in the U18s. Anything that might be of a particular challenge to him with a little bit uh, less time in the oven relative to maybe some of his predecessors? Uh, just, I think the experience of being able to coach in different situations last year was quite hard for the under 18s. They, they didn't win a trophy for the first time in five years. It was a very different squad that Andy was working with. They didn't have a bad season by, by any measure. They, they only lost to four teams in total, but there were matches that they drew that they might have liked to win. They weren't as clinical in front of goal as they could have been. And it's about solving problems as a, as a coach who's only had uh, one year in charge of a team rather than being the assistant and being able to develop your own style and strategy and adapt from that. But whether he's in charge of the 18s or the 23s, he's still able to get that experience and opportunity to learn. And we've seen already this season with the development squad, he's been able to encourage, have his team mount late comebacks against Manchester City and against Tottenham. So I think he's reaping the, the benefits of stepping up early anyway. Well, I think that's a good segue right into kind of touching on last season and, and how it went. So for those... Uh, who maybe aren't familiar, the table looked like Everton on top, Arsenal, Brighton, Liverpool, Blackburn, Chelsea, Derby, Man City, Tottenham, Leicester, and then in the relegation zone. Is it actually relegation, Phil? Yeah, there's 24 Category 1 teams. They are split into two divisions of 12 uh, under 23 level. So those two will go down and they were replaced by Wolves and Southampton for this season. Okay, so West Ham and Swansea went down, Wolves and Southampton came up. Um, As you mentioned, just to give you perspective, so Everton won on 41 points, uh, 12 wins, 5 draws, 5 losses. Chelsea were 6th, so mid-table on 31 points, so 10 points behind, 9 wins, four draws, nine losses. Um, Not being a detailed fan of this team, but having seen many of trophies lifted by this group and the groups amongst all the ages, how would you rate the performance last season? Because my casual fan eye test says, whoa, nine losses for this team? That only plus one goal difference? It kind of seems weird. doesn't seem 
to be like the normal expectations we have. Yeah, it, it was up and down. They they could have been better. They did. They won two matches at home all season. They didn't win at all until December at home. They tried various things. They played at Aldershot. They played at Stamford Bridge. They swapped the home and away dugouts around at Aldershot just for superstition. Wow. But <laughs> they really they they, they tried genuinely did. They tried everything. <laughs> Uh, they they were never tremendously outclassed. They just ended up losing by the odd goal here or there. They lacked a little bit of depth, which is always the way at this level because so many players who are still eligible to play for them have already gone out on loan or graduated up to the first team like Ampadu did, like Hudson-Odoi did. They would have ordinarily been available in any other season. So a team like Everton win the title with players at the age of 20, 21, 22 playing every week. And, and Chelsea were giving up two or three years against most opponents. It, it it wasn't it wasn't the worst season by any means. They it was fairly equal balance. Nine wins, nine losses, thirty four goals scored, thirty three conceded. It was fine margins as much as anything else. Just a quick question, uh, Phil. I see that they only play twenty two matches in their in their season. Um, is there a specific reason for kind of a shortage there compared to what a typical Premier League slate would be? Uh, it's usually because of the UEFA Youth League, which will add a maximum of 10 matches on top for the majority of that squad. They used to enter the Premier League Cup and the Premier League International Cup, which can add another 10 games each. So if you reach the business end of all of those competitions, you end up playing 40 plus matches and they don't quite have the the players available to fill in all of those gaps. They're comfortable with... I even mentioned, forgot to mention the EFL trophy, which they have entered every year since being invited into it. So they're in three competitions, which will bring them somewhere in the region, 35 matches in all competitions. Would, would there be a, a player or two that you can pick out from last season that really leveraged their time in the dev squad appropriately to set them up for you know even more success this season? I know you kind of talked about the fact that you know we're more... Uh, elevator sometimes than stairs in terms of getting players out on a, a productive loan or getting them into a different setting versus letting our 21, 22 year old players play in the under 23s. So who who are those maybe the one or two players that you saw last season who, you know, ultimately took the best advantage possible of their time in the, the dev squad? Uh, the, the easiest one that comes to mind is Conor Gallagher. He was the Academy player of the year last year. It was his first real full-time season playing at that level. He started 15 matches, four sub-appearances. Um, he was a driving force throughout the central midfield through the entire season. He added goals to his game. He added assists to his game. And now he's gone off to Charlton on loan while still at the age of 19 and is already making an impact in the championship, which is extremely hard to do for a player who's never played senior football before. Connor, to me, is a player who leads with his heart. To me, like he, I feel like he's not the fastest out there. I think he's super technical, but he's one that just the passion and his ability to rally people behind him to say, we're not giving up. We're going to keep pushing. Am I reading him correctly? I think you're reading him correctly to a point because it's he, he wouldn't be the same player if he didn't have the passion and the engine and the heart that he has. But sometimes people look at that and fail to see the, the technical player behind the, the exterior. And he's he's got the technique to play in midfield he's got the purpose of passing he's got the drive between box to box he can tactically understand how to play any central midfield role Charlton are using him on the side of a midfield diamond which is something he hasn't done regularly at Chelsea in his junior career he was a bit more of a wide player settled a bit deeper when he came into the 18th of the first year and has progressed into 
almost a, an eight and a half to a 10 in the last year to 18 months. And I think the the intangibles accentuate the, the fundamental technical ability he has. Okay, well, um, definitely one to keep an eye on, without a doubt. So obviously, Chelsea have uh, a bit of a lone army, you might say. <laughs> it's a little bit reduced uh, this season, but yeah, it's there's still true. quite a few players out. That is true. There's a lot of departures this summer. But in general, because I think that probably the last few years and even beyond has a big impact, how much of a challenge or an extra weight having this huge loan army, a lot of times of many foreign players, does it put on the youth teams inside Chelsea's academy in terms of maybe their options for advancement or their kind of vision on what the successful path to the youth team is? Do you think that the loan armies maybe um, had a had a negative impact or maybe made it more difficult for our academy teams? Um, I wouldn't say so. The development squad always have the understanding that they will lose players after a year or two to go into the loan army. And that's the accepted pathway the club have worked towards. And to an extent, it's been successful because players have really, really impressed out on loan and positioned themselves into a situation where they should be given opportunities in the first team. So... The academy have always been forward thinking in pushing players up the age groups, going well below the under 18s. You'll have players moving up to, uh, as under 16s. We go back to Dominic Solanke and Tammy Abraham. They played up regularly as schoolboys. They moved into the development squad as 17 year olds and were out on loan by the age of 18 and 19. It works, because, but it's it's done to to challenge them as much as anything else you don't want them playing at their age group if they're bullying everybody and finding it far too easy yeah that makes sense yeah all right cool how the, how you know you mentioned the fact that you know players like Callum or Tammy have progressed in that way do do you think that how much i mean if we quantify maybe like by a percent uh or whatever abstract construct you'd like to use um how beneficial has that been for the development of those players? Because it seems like we have, with the fact that we're getting players in earlier, even though it might challenge at the U23 level, we're maybe seeing the or reaping the rewards of this process with the likes of Tammy now in the first team, Mason in the first team, and, and kind of are breeding better players quicker uh, by having maybe a more accelerated timeline. Yeah, absolutely. If the players are good enough at a young enough age, then by all means get them in the first team. Callum was clearly ready for the first team involvement at the age of 17 and alone wouldn't have benefited him quite as much as coming through last season and making an impact in the Europa League. Could Tammy have done that? Could Mason have done that? Uh, we can all speculate uh, as to whether they'd have been able to impact, but they learned plenty out on loan and we're seeing the rewards in the first team now of their experience of two years out on loan. The same with Fakayo. Well, so looking at the current squad then, so we have uh, a couple players here, um, you know, just kind of running down the list. We've got Nick, uh, goalkeepers, uh, Brandon's favorite position, Nicholas Ty, Carlos Zeiger. We have uh, a couple of defenders, just a few. We have uh, Mark Gahey. We've got Tariq Lampety. We've got Marcel Lavenier, uh, Ian Matson. Jack uh, Wakely. Then we have uh, a fair amount of midfielders. Uh, Fatsuno uh, and Joran. We've got Billy Gilmore, Clinton Mola, George McEachran, Jonathan Russell, Tariq Uwake, and Charlie Brown as our forward. So that makes up the existing squad. 
I know, Nick, we have maybe some questions we want to try to kind of get through on that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we have a, a you know, we, we kind of put this out to our audience, um, Phil, and, and wanted to uh, to get their involvement. And um, Aerith Muggle came through uh, with one that, that we thought was going to be good for you to address, which is, uh, hey, uh, I'm still confused about where all the goals are going to come from now that Hazard is gone. How do you think we'll replace his goals, guys? Uh, Youth-wise, I want to hear about all the Gilmore and McEachern. Uh, McEachern the second, I guess it's being called. But would love to know more about Andrian as well. I mean, Andrian's a guy uh, that we kind of want to start with, uh, Phil, which would be uh, you know someone who's on the tip of, of everybody's tongues right now. Uh, he has a hot start to the season, actually, uh, after you know kind of a, a serious injury last year. Can you talk a little bit about him and his style of play? Yeah, he's obviously, he draws easy comparisons to Ruben Loftus-Cheek because he's a, a big-bodied attacking midfielder. They're not quite the same sort of player. Tino's probably more of a, a second striker in a way, but that doesn't mean that he's not adept playing central midfield. He's got a more expansive passing range than Ruben, but might not be quite as destructive running vertically with the ball. But he he made his development, excuse me, development squad debut back in... October of 2018 and scored on his debut there found the level I wouldn't say too easy but he adapted very very quickly scored five or six goals and then suffered with a back injury at the turn of the year that he really didn't recover from until April and that sort of has knock-on effects when you injure your back he wasn't quite right throughout pre-season this year which is why his minutes at the start of the season have been a little bit up and down. But the opportunities he's had to get on the pitch, he's already shown that he's one of the more advanced players in the squad, despite not turning 18 until November. So another one I would say, well, I guess I think we should probably continue on Mark Gahey. So captain of the dev squad looked imperious alongside Rudiger, which again, he's next to a grown ass German, (laughs) like well done to, to kind of look like you belong alongside him. Um, he got a new contract, and he's starting for England U21s. Apparently, and I'm not familiar with the England youth setup, so uh, don't get mad, but apparently that's a rarity to essentially be starting in the U21s, yet not having made his senior first-team appearance. Is that right? Yeah, it is. They they tend to have players that they'll look for. So Mark was part of the team that won the Under-17 World Cup, part of the 2000-born generation that spawned Hudson-Odoi, Jaden Sancho, Phil Foden, this England's golden generation. And Mark scored in the final of that. He hasn't made his breakthrough yet, but he's a clear favourite of the FA. He's moved up uh, one age group. He's technically with the under-20s by age, but he's been promoted up to the 21s. Earned a start at centre-half alongside former Chelsea player Jonathan Panzo and has been very confident, very capable and looks like he's on the verge of a first-team debut at Chelsea as well now. You mentioned when you were talking about Tino that there's a comparison to maybe Ruben Loftus-Cheek with, with, with some kind of um, you know, qualifiers on there. Is there a player that, for those who maybe don't watch as much youth football, you'd be able to kind of draw a comparison to either in the uh, the first squad or in the history of Chelsea players maybe over the past 10, 15, 20 seasons? Yeah, I think I wrote on Twitter a couple of years ago that Mark reminds me of Fikayo Tomori in many ways. He's mm. sort of played at fullback, but is more comfortable on a centre half. He's got the same comfort bringing the ball out from defence. He's got he's comfortable passing. He can cover. He's got great physical attributes. He's authoritative. He doesn't have ideal height for the position, but he never lets it 
um, overwhelm him. It never lets it, he never becomes exposed because of it. So, and, and, you know, we saw him obviously play with the first team in the preseason this year. Um, and, I, and I think he made the bench uh, for a couple of games late last season as well. Uh, how do you think that's kind of helped maybe uh, speed along his development? When you get involved with the first team, it's about being comfortable in that environment. It's it's a doggy dog world. It's a cliche, but people are fighting for jobs, fighting for careers and the standard of play is exponentially higher so you need to go in there with the right mindset and the right character that you belong in that environment so being able to train with them on a regular basis travel with them on a match day even if you're not actually named in the 18-man squad it all just helps acclimatize you and prepare you for when you do get the call so one of the the players you highlighted wanting to take an opportunity to talk about is is clinton mola uh, one of our uh, individuals in the midfield capacity there so uh, what would you maybe describe him as or like why why were you excited to talk about uh, maybe him in specific? I think it's because he's done really, really well in a number of positions. He was a relative newcomer to the academy. He joined uh, as an under 14 from grassroots football in London. He wasn't previously attached to an academy and settled into uh, a box to box role for the under 18s, particularly last season. Um, he's left footed. He's got lovely balance about him. He's got the ability to to break the lines with passing and with uh, tra- traveling with the ball himself he's got a, a mean long shot on him and so you look at the the promotion up to the development squad by age this year and you think he's going to play in midfield again but actually he's been playing at center half alongside Gurhi because Jack Wakeley's had a couple of injuries and hasn't been in the team so Mola having the versatility to play there has settled in and he looks like he's played the position his entire career. You mentioned when you kind of talked about Mark that he maybe is maybe a little undersized for kind of that position. When you look at, you know, Clinton, you kind of look at maybe some of the the physical plus the technical pieces. Um, how does he look for that fit? And, uh, you know, maybe again, a comparable player that you could uh, draw a comparison to. He's a similar sort of height to Mark, actually. They're, okay. they're both, they're both good. Uh, they've got pr- uh, prodigious leaps. They're very comfortable in the air. You'll um you'll obviously come up against bigger and stronger centre forwards over the years, and it's your job to find ways to win against them. You're never going to be six foot five if you're Clinton. You're never going to grow to that height. So it's about <laughs> solving problems that way. Um, I can't. I tend not to stress too much about player comparisons if one doesn't easily come to mind, and one doesn't really for Clinton right now because he's a bit of an everything sort of player and hasn't settled down. I think he's probably better in midfield, but it's to his credit that he's been able to play at centre-half and look so accomplished there. Is that similar to, you know, like a Trevor uh, Shaloba, for example, who, you know, has played multiple positions in the youth setup and finds himself kind of in between um, a couple of things on loan? Um, A little bit. I've always fancied Trev as a centre-half first and foremost, but he and various people around him think that midfield is most suited to his skill set right now um, I know there's been discussions over the years Joe Tweeds has mentioned it a lot does the universality of Chelsea's academy players hinder them by not having a, a set position at a young age they get moved around a lot without being able to focus down on one particular role and I don't think it's necessarily a problem um, like I said earlier if it gives you the flexibility to fit into a first team manager's plans when things change at the drop of a hat then I don't, I don't think it's a bad thing at all, but someone like Clinton being able to play centre-half, centre-mid, left-wing back, he's a, a little bit like Nathan Aki in that regard. Nathan, not the tallest centre-half, but has managed to build a, a very competent Premier League career out of it. And if Clinton can 
get close to that standard, then I'm sure he'll be very happy. So I think another one who is really broken through and creating a ton of hype this season, Billy Gilmore, the young Scottish bloke that I can't understand, but he looks so smooth <laughs> on the field. I tell you what, um, can you touch on him? I remember Chelsea did a, a little day in the life video clip of him a few years back when he had just moved to to London um, and just he looks so young but when he gets on the field this like new personality and aura comes out of him and he looks absolutely natural like that's where he should be yeah he's he's exactly what you said he's one of the modern generation of slightly undersized technically technically gifted central midfielders they have the ball at their feet all day they're happy to scheme they're happy to walk straight from a slightly deeper position he's undoubtedly one of the leaders in the development squad he might not be a john terry leader in a, a bombastic um extrovert sense but he, he quietly leads he he sets the standard for everyone around him and the first team debut was entirely warranted yeah i i think uh you know obviously a lot of people will maybe criticize that type of substitution um for for billy in that match because of the the end result of it um when you look at what billy's maybe next step is, you know, I, I, cause I think there's things like, you know, the amount of time he has to spend at the club to be considered, um, homegrown or a club trained, you know, what is his kind of development pathway look like in your mind at the moment? Um, I think obviously if he spends the rest of the season at the club, then he qualifies as club trained and everything for UEFA competition, which is fine because right now he's, he's on the verges of the first team. He's going to get cup opportunities. He's going to get, the experience of training with the first team every day i think alone would probably benefit him more than most players because he's never going to be the biggest midfielder he needs to go out there compete in the engine room with bigger midfielders and get that experience of toughening up away from chelsea so that he, you're not thrown into the heat of a Premier League battle and exposed to it before you're ready. I mean, we've clearly seen him play, you know, as more of an advanced eight. We've seen him play back as a six, um, as a central midfielder, defensive midfielder. Is there a is there one area that you think he is just ready for prime time for? I think if you let him sit a little bit deeper and orchestrate, get the ball, a lot, a lot of touches of the ball, he's got the vision and the creativity to make the best use of it. I don't think you want him playing forward as a 10 because he, he needs to find space and wait for the ball to come to him. Whereas clearly what he does best is to get on the ball and dictate the play. You know, that I, I thought the same thing. It kind of reminded me, and again, by no means am I making this comparison, but yesterday when City were losing to Norwich, which we can all take a moment and, and relish. Uh, but anyways, De Bruyne would essentially come all the way back to half field, get the ball off uh, the center back, and he would take it in because he's like, I he wants to run at people. Um, so he has the vision in the space. And you can see that, you know, Billy's always analyzing as such a, an ability to wait a pass. It has uh, been fantastic. So, um, but the, the last one we do want to touch on before we get into another question is Matson. Um, a bit of a Dutch influence in this team, isn't there? Yeah, they've had, um, we we'll go back to Jeffrey Broom and Patrick van Aanholt. They like to go to the Netherlands and find players uh, to bring over. The language barrier doesn't really exist. Everyone in the Netherlands seems to speak English fairly well now. Um, then we had Nathan Aki and then Juan Castillo and now, and then Deshaun Redon. And yeah, Martin was the latest one of those. And obviously the Dutch education model in football is very similar to England, they come over, versatile, 
very comfortable with the ball, athletically uh, developed and able to slot seamlessly into English football. So, you know, we, we did get a couple other questions. So one would be just uh, from uh, Ghana Zanga, uh, Zinga 30. So he's asking who, who other, who outside of Billy would be the kids who are ready maybe for first team debuts this year. Obviously, we've got Carabao Cup coming up. Uh, we've got Tino, Lampity, we've got Mark, we've got Brown, Matson. Is there anyone that you see as being you know, maybe like a power ranking as the one, two, three, who's most likely to get some minutes as we head into some some early cup stages that we should be able to really allow the youth to have a chance to get rolled out with some level of existing uh, squad players, because I'm sure it's not going to be an 11 for 11 swap. No, I think uh, Emerson's injury and the proximity of the Grimsby game means that Martin tops that list. If Emerson, if there are any doubts about him whatsoever, he won't play, Alonso won't play, Martin will be in line to play against Grimsby if that happens. And even even if not, I think he'll be on the bench. Mark Gurhi should probably be on the bench. He might start, but if you've got to give minutes to Rudiger, to Zuma, to Christensen and to Tamori, then Mark is fifth in line. If they stick with three at the back, his opportunities obviously increase because there's another position for him to slot into. And otherwise, uh, Tino Angerin's probably the next in line given his start to the season for the development squad. He could get 10, 15, 20 minutes against Grimsby and be very much at home. This just makes me more excited to be there for those matches, know. you know? We we get to see the the deep Chelsea squad for this one. Uh, so I'm pumped. That's awesome. Uh, you know, the kind of the final one that we wanted to wrap on because it's, it's you know, there have been some recent developments here uh, would be around uh, Juan Castillo. Um, he obviously has moved to Ajax uh, and, and looks like he might actually go out permanently there at some point, but uh, he was likely to play with the U23s this year. Could you maybe talk about, um, you know, Matson versus Castillo, kind of plus and minuses of, of either? Yeah, um, it's really curious what happened with Juan because it looked for all the world as if he was about to leave as a free agent at the end of last season. He said his goodbyes, um, was ready to, to move on, and then out of nowhere sort of did a 180 and signed a new three-year deal with the club. And the subsequent loan to Ajax with the option to buy sort of suggests that it might be a compromise on Chelsea's part. Instead of losing him for nothing, they say, right, if you if you sign a new deal, we're open to loaning you with the option to buy. And then they get something back in terms of compensation for him. But in terms of comparison of player, Juan is inherently a more attacking player. He started as a, a bit of a number 10 at Ajax, moves to the left side because of his athletic profile. And in England, you can play as a left back or a left wing back in academy football and essentially be an auxiliary winger. Whereas someone like Martson is a left back who can also play as a left centre back or a left wing back. And the Netherlands have used him as a central midfielder. So there's a lot of versatility, but Ian is much more defense first. So we had a chance to talk about the existing squad, and I think this is the, the excitement we have and you have and, and everyone has around this uh, this next generation of talent and maybe some of the specific things with a couple of players that they needed uh, to work on or they'll have to focus on this season. In general, when you've seen the players go from the dev squad to either playing uh, on a loan or playing as they progress to the first team. Are, are there things that supporters should think about as the things that they're going to have to naturally adapt to that we, we don't maybe 
apply the right filter on in terms of making sure that we evaluate them appropriately or give them the right level of of ramp time uh, i think the pace and the intensity of the premier league is unrivaled anywhere in the world so if you're someone like billy gilmore who's getting your first taste of any senior football in the premier league or whether you're a mason mount or a tammy abraham who've been out on loan testing it in the championship that's a big step up for anybody and they have to be ready for it they have to answer the question of whether they belong at that level. Now, more often than not, they do, but it takes a little bit of time. It's rare for somebody to come straight into the team and immediately hit it off. So it's it's about tempering expectations. If somebody gets a debut against Grimsby, I know it's a, it's a, a game against a, a League 2 team, but it's still entering that environment into the, in for the first time, and you have to feel comfortable with where you're at. Yeah, I, you know, <laughs> that's probably one of the most important questions we've asked today is there's so much excitement behind the youth right now. And I think it could almost be overexcitement and maybe wanting them to develop quicker than what uh, probably the academy staff have in mind for these players. And the fans are like, nope, we're going. Youth revolution, throw them all in. <laughs> Let's let's go. Yeah, and Frank's been Frank's been very keen to mention that almost uh, uh, every match before and afterwards. It's not just uh, about the youth at Chelsea right now. It's about making sure that the senior players step up and are counted, and getting the best out of them. Yeah. So it's fine to have Tammy and Fakayo and Mason reaching the heights they have already this season, but you can't build a team full of twenty to twenty-one year olds in the Premier League and win successfully you need the experience around them. And I don't think anyone's ever seriously suggested that we go with a team that's got the average age of 19 and just chuck the youth cut winning team straight into a league match. Well, we, we remember having uh, Pat Nevin on the show last season and the suggestion around if we decided to replace a starting 11 with all 21, 20 year olds that we probably would end up being mid table at, at best. So I, I, I don't think that would be out of the realm of possibility. And I feel like this, you know, uh, the unfortunateness of the transfer ban or registration ban has actually produced probably the best possibility for Chelsea and getting to take advantage of this academy that we've ever seen. Yep, yeah, and we've still got Hudson-Odoi, Loftus-Cheek and Reese James to come back into it. So there's a fair chance that at some point in the season, the Premier League match could have those three and Mason, Tammy and Fikayo all start at the same time, which would be brilliant from my perspective but it needs to be the right match and hopefully by the time that Ruben's fit and Callum's fit and ready to go Tammy and Mason will have developed into a little bit more of a leader profile they've both got it in them they've both captained academy teams throughout the years so by the time they're 10 15 20 Premier League games deep they can assume more responsibility for the guys following them and just to follow up on that I mean we talked about it a little earlier but I think it's important because we're you know, we're kind of on this identity DNA type of path as well uh, that you mentioned, you know, for, you know, a guy coming up, let's, you know, pretend that the Android makes the, the Grimsby, you know, starting 11 um, to see what Tammy and Mason and Fakayo have already done. Plus, you know, the uh, experience that Callum and Ruben bring to the, to the squad. How do you feel like that makes a path, um, maybe differently than a couple of years ago for, for these guys who are on the U23 team? Well, the pathway exists because the coaching staff want it to exist. If the manager doesn't want it, if the manager's not interested in watching the academy or talking to the academy staff, then that pathway simply isn't there. So everyone on the coaching staff, from Frank down to the goalkeeping coaches and Chris Jones, the fitness coach, have worked in the academy. 
they don't have to force that they they are they have inherently lived it they are friends with people on the coaching side and the pathway will exist because of them and so when you when the players in the current dev squad see billy making his debut already this season seeing what the youngsters are already doing it encourages them it's they've set the tone everyone else has to follow but because you know that the door is now open you raise your game because you never know if you're going to get the call for a, a, a tie against Grimsby or whoever. It's an interesting kind of thought there. And so as you've had a chance to watch the, the U23s, the U18s, is there any, with the, with the way the synergy is working with Chelsea, I think it's at another level compared to any other side in the Premier League. But do you think there is a club in the Premier League that could be doing that in a similar way? or following in the footsteps of this model maybe that we're, we're showing does have a way to produce positive results both for, for player and club? I'm generally of the opinion that every club has academy players that are good enough to play for them right now and that they needn't go out and spend 20 to 30 million on a squad option that they're going to use 10, 15 times and then sell on at the end of the season. It's, it's a fair waste. The, the talent level across England going way down through the divisions. I don't think it's ever been higher. So Manchester United are sort of flirting with it right now, a little bit out of necessity, but they've got a generation, Mason Greenwood, Angel Gomez, Tahith Chong. They've sort of started to bleed those in. Liverpool have got a bunch of them, but understandably they're European champions. The opportunities to play in that team aren't quite as hard. Arsenal have got a fantastic crop of English players. So we're talking the top six and they've all got players who could come in and do the same sort of thing that Tammy and Mason have done over the last month. The clubs just have to want to do it. Um, Okay, well, I think while we have covered everyone who is at Cobham, right, playing under the Chelsea badge, there are a couple players, I think, that are in the lone army that came through some youth that I would love your perspective on. And so if we can kind of go outside the the realms of it, we've talked about Connor Gallagher. We've talked about Trev Chalaba. I, as uh, someone who can trace their heritage back to Wales, am very interested about the leg-breaking Ethan Ampadu and kind of what your thoughts on him are. Uh, and obviously, if you want to even touch on his move to RB, Le- RB Leipzig in Germany. Yeah, um, a lot of people are sort of uncertain as to whether Ethan should be a centre-back or a midfielder. Um, I don't think you really have to make a definitive choice at this point in time. You do you put him where he plays well. And Wales have used him as a destructive midfielder. He seems very adept at doing that. And with the departure of Bakayoko from the first-team squad, arguably could have been kept around to provide depth and insurance in multiple positions within the team. But he's gone to Germany to play regularly, which you can't blame him for. It's a very high-level loan. I'm sure he'll get opportunities to play there because he's good enough. And while he hasn't started a match so far, I don't think we need to panic on that front either. A lot of people on Twitter, as is customary these days apparently, (laughs) have suggested recalling him already or whatever. And it's tempered by remembering that the likes of Mason Mount didn't start a match at Vitesse, uh, easier league by comparison, until December. He's gone abroad for the first time. He's in a new country. He's a new training environment. He doesn't speak the language. It takes a little bit of time to adapt. You, you'll come back to his footballing ability. It will get him into the team eventually. So one one follow-up there would be is that it, the loan selection seems to be a, a really tricky process. And, you know, how, how do you think maybe the club goes about that? How much of it is involved with the, the player's willingness to go to 
a particular country or club? Like, how how does that negotiation go about? And because I think there are a lot of times you, you talk about the the overreaction online. Sometimes you know where a player goes or what league they go to can be me overly criticized. But you know it seems like you know in more recent years. Uh, Tammy's loans, um, most recent loan, Mesa's most recent loan have all produced success, uh, but that's not always the case. It's it's really hard in the first place to to find a suitable home because you're dealing with a finite number of clubs who can afford your player because there will be a loan fee or a wage contribution involved. There are a finite number of clubs who play at an appropriate level, and then you have to find opportunities within that squad for the player that you need to get playing time. So they'll build up to it a month in advance. They'll know when they're intending on going on loan. But sometimes you have to take a risk. You can sort of undersell the loan, get them into a level below where they're at so they can they can play regularly, they can build confidence and build their reputation to earn a move to a higher level afterwards. Or you can go in right at the top like Ampadu's done and say, uh, well, I've got the pedigree to play here. I'm going to back myself to play here because eventually I want to play in the Chelsea first team. If I'm good enough to play for if I, if I think I'm good enough to play for Chelsea, then I should be in the Leipzig team. Yeah, I, I think, you know, obviously Ampadu is a, is a favorite of ours. Just uh, we, we love his intensity and we love kind of what he, he brings to the team. His leadership, just yeah. bossing 29, 30-year-old men around. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's rare for somebody of that age to be as authoritative and as comfortable as he is. And it might be in a, a part because he started playing for Exeter's first team at 15 and his dad was a former professional and now an academy coach and all the little things that come together. But it's it's rare to have a player like that, which is why he was so in demand. Uh, another guy who we you know, know has uh, leadership abilities is uh, Dujan Sterling, uh, clearly a academy favorite. And I think a lot of times, either fairly or unfairly, gets kind of um, linked with Reese James uh, in terms of kind of competing for similar spots and uh and all that stuff so you know it, let's talk about his loan let's talk about his uh, abilities and and do you think he kind of has uh chelsea first team in him or is he someone who you think uh needs a little bit more uh development time yeah the comparisons to reese uh, won't be helped by the fact that he went to wigan to almost effectively replace him <laughs> except he hasn't played yet which is curious and not just curious for Chelsea fans Wigan fans have been at a loss as to why he hasn't been in what has been a struggling team so far he isn't injured or hasn't been reported as injured just hasn't managed to work his way into the team so far which is a surprise because he went to Coventry last year played a full season mostly at right back did some time at left back um, out of emergency he can play there and, and learn a lot about what it was to play in the professional game. As a fullback in the lower leagues, you're going to have goal kicks in your way. You're going to have to compete in the air. And this was stuff that he hadn't done regularly in academy football. He was uh, an attacking right back. He'd play up on the wing. He'd score goals. He played centre forward at times. That's what he does best. And I think there's an argument that eventually when he settles down, you should play him further forward. Don't worry about the defensive responsibility and let him impact the game in the final third. There's maybe a little bit of uh, Adama Traore. He's not quite the same sort of player, but clearly a wrecking ball going forward with some defensive concerns. Put your players in a position to do what they do well. Um, So as far as the Chelsea future goes, he's got the potential to impact the game for the club, but he's a little bit further away than someone like Reese at this point. Are there any other 
you know, kind of on loan, um, you know, former youth academy players that you are kind of keeping your eye on, especially, or is that kind of the core group? There's so many of them these days that it's always easy to pick on somebody. I've always been a fan of Nathan Baxter, who's got a more of an interesting backstory because he went out on loan as a 17 year old goalkeeper, which is extremely rare. He went down to some of the lower levels of English non-league football because he wanted to test himself physically as a goalkeeper in the men's game. You're going to get bumped. You're going to get hit. You're going to be challenged by bigger men. And you don't get that in academy football. You can go through development squad matches weeks at a time without having a physical contact against you. So he went out to the Metropolitan Police he then played at Solihull Moors, he went to Woking, he went to Yeovil, and now he's at Ross County in Scotland. He's working his way up the ladder at each step, and he's still only the age of 20 with more than 100 professional, sorry, senior games under his belt. Unfortunately, he hurt his shoulder in pre-season and won't be back until maybe November. But if he can find fitness and form again in the second half of the season, he'll be a 20, 21-year-old goalkeeper having the opportunity to maybe move into championship football next season and while someone like Martin Bulker left the club in the summer because he doesn't see a pathway through with Kepa having a seven-year contract Nathan's the sort of person who he said he's up for the challenge when Kepa's seven-year contract is up he'll still be in his early to mid-20s he's got more of a chance than I think than people realize because he's got this foundation of experience under his belt already he's one that we so i don't know if you're familiar but we do a keep sell loan episode every summer absolutely i listen to it regularly i've written him off i think the last two years but when you <laughs> when you put it that way i'm just i'm owning up like it makes a lot of sense i mean over a hundred senior appearances throughout different levels and and all these things and then you get the you know the fact that he essentially has a runway to develop as you mentioned keppa with a monster contract, which you're going to do when you put 80 mil down for a goalkeeper. All right, well, quick little mini pivot is let's go ahead and touch on the current table and results so far from this season since I think we do have a, a few matches, five matches to, uh, to touch on, thankfully. Um, listeners, remember the table we said before and go ahead and take this one in. So as it stands... The table looks like Chelsea on top with 11 points, tied with Arsenal in second on 11 points. Then it's Tottenham, Derby, Wolves, Everton, Brighton, Leicester, Man City, Blackburn, Southampton, and Liverpool. It looks as if we are undefeated with three wins and two draws. Um, How has this season gone in your eyes so far, Phil? I know we have... um, yeah, um, uh, just a much, much better start to this season so far. Uh, let me see. Sorry, I, f- I missed. So yeah, yeah, three wins, two draws, undefeated, sitting pretty. Yeah, they've been they've been really good. Um, they went to Swindon in the EFL Trophy in the opening game and outplayed an admittedly young senior team, but a senior team nonetheless. And then they went to Derby, came away with uh, a late winner there in a match that they dominated from start to finish. Played at home to Liverpool with Rudiger and Bashoi playing. Bashoi scored twice that night and they were extremely comfortable. And then they had a, a couple of moments of adversity away to Man City and at home to Tottenham. They were 2-0 down on both occasions late in the game and managed to find stoppage time equalisers. At City, it was Mark Gurhey scoring against Tottenham. Tarek Lamptey scored at the very end. So it, they found the spirit within the group 
to to keep fighting to remain unbeaten all the while having to use 17 year olds who've never played at this level before so the likes of Tiano Balo and Marcel Lewis and Armando Broger have come up from the under 18s because the depth is even thinner than before Castillo left on deadline day Tarek Awakwe's had a few injuries Andrew's not been able to play 90 minutes so they've had to call upon guys who really have no exposure to this level but have managed to slot in into the system play with confidence play with a personality and stay unbeaten so far so you know obviously we we, uh we enjoy predictions just as much as everybody and we are terribly wrong at them (laughs) so we will we will set it up with the caveat that uh, you will not be held to this and and no one will uh look uh ill upon you if you are incorrect but how do you feel like the team will finish this season maybe based upon a a smaller sample size to start i think they'll end up in the top six again i don't think they quite have the manpower to maintain a title challenge just purely because of the these things I've just said. If if Charlie Brown's out injured, for example, then Armando Brogia becomes the senior striker and he's not yet started a match at this level. They've got a, a group of maybe half a dozen players who are well-versed at playing at this level and everyone else is coming along with them. So they'll be happy to finish in and around the top three and maintain a title challenge up until March time when, if all goes to plan, the UEFA Youth League's latter stages sort of take priority. Players go there, they take the majority of the minutes and the development squad uses the next group of under-18 graduates. So the league might fall secondary to the UEFA Youth League in terms of silverware because I think they've got another really good chance in Europe. Okay. do you... Yeah, who do you think will be um, the likely top goal scorer for the season? I mean, is Charlie kind of the the first and only option, or are there others that will that will contribute? <laughs> I mean, if, if if Charlie had the rewards that his work um, deserves this season, he'd already have a dozen goals. He runs so selflessly, puts himself into positions to bring everybody else into the game. His link up players improved dramatically over the last two years but it just isn't finishing for him right now he's snatching at chances or they're being blocked and you can see the frustrations creeping in I think if he gets a run of form going he'll finish as the top scorer because he is the center forward but otherwise uh, Tino Andrin is a constant goal threat um, he's uh, I remember quite vividly Jody Morris described him as the best finisher and he's under 18 team and he was a midfielder who was in a squad with Brown, with Redan and Taylor Crossdale. So that was no mean feat. He'll always score goals. So one of those two. All right. And then player of the season? Um, yep, could be anybody. But I'm going to go for Tarek Lamptey because he's the, my, uh, by far and away my favorite player to watch in football. He's an absolute bundle of energy. He's up and down the right wing. He's fouled roughly a million times per match. <laughs> Statistically speaking. <laughs> yeah. I haven't kept a strict count, but it certainly seems that way. Yeah, he's he's so much fun to watch. He gives absolutely everything he's got. He plays on the right, um, up and down. More this season, um, as a sort of a tactical wrinkle, he's coming through the centre of the pitch, causing havoc in there. And if he keeps up the way he's been playing for the first two months of the season, he'll definitely be up there. Love it. Well, again, thank you, Phil. This has been fantastic. For our listeners out there, this is the Dev Squad, okay? We are doing the U18s next, so make sure... You check on that podcast as well. But uh, again, if you're not, if you're one of the few people in the Chelsea ecosystem not following at Chelsea Youth on Twitter, go do it. It's well worth it. Uh, And again, Phil, thanks. This has been awesome. Yep. Thank you, guys. All right. Well, Chelsea fans, uh, hope you appreciated this one again. Go give a follow. Go give them a shout. Say you enjoyed it. But until next time, Chelsea fans, you know what to do. 
keep the blue flag flying high.